if you have your Bible with you, let me encourage you to hold it up and repeat after me what we believe about this book. This is God's Word. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error first matter. It is the supreme source of truth for what we believe and how we live. Now, turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 11. This morning, we're going to be looking at four different passages of Scripture as we look at four different Old Testament dads. I think every dad here would acknowledge that being a father is tough. The truth of the matter is being a father is, is at least one of the most difficult assignments that I have ever been given in life. Before I became a dad, I, I made a decision that I was not going to make the same kind of mistakes that other dads made. They may mess up. They may blow it. They may not be everything they need to be, but not me. I was going to be super dad. And then I became a dad. And I began to struggle with the same struggles that other dads struggle with, struggling to to balance the demands of work and the demands of being a dad, struggling with, with what freedoms to give and, and what restrictions to put in place, struggling with wanting to provide for my children and yet not wanting to spoil them or give them an entitlement mentality, struggling with how and when to discipline them. Let's be real. Father hood is tough. Before we become a father, we wonder what it's going to be like. And once we become a father, we wonder whether we're doing a good job or not. Back in the early 80s, the early 90s, there was this show that came on TV entitled Major Dad. It was about this major in the United States Marine Corps who was also a dad. And, and it was all about him trying to balance the demands of being a dad in the military. Well, today I want us to look at some major dads in the Bible, dads that are well-known, but dads who made some major mistakes. Now, before we go any further, let me say I am glad that the Bible not only tells us the successes of people, but it tells us of their failures. Aren't you glad? Because if the Bible just told us about the successes of people in the Bible, we would think that, that people never messed up. They never made mistakes. They never failed. And, and yet, as we read the Bible, we discover that God used flawed people. God used many women just like us who, who make mistakes, who mess up, who blow it to do incredible things. But what we do need to understand is that when we blow it, there are consequences. And what I want you to see today is that these four major dads who made some major mistakes discovered that there were consequences not only in their life for the decisions that they made, but there were consequences in the lives of their families. You see, dads, when you mess up, when you blow it, you're not just affecting you. You're affecting everyone in your family. 
And so we need to be careful how we live. So four major mistakes by four major dads. Here's mistake number one. Compromise your values. When you compromise your values as a dad, you're making a major mistake. Now, to see this, we're going to look at David, who was king of Israel. He was a man the Bible describes as a man who sought after God's own heart. That means that he loved God with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, all of his strength. He had a desire to walk in obedience to God. David was a special man, and yet David was a flawed man. His flaws begin before we ever get to the passage we're going to look at in just a minute. You say, what was it? I mean, if he was a man after God's own heart, what flaws were there in David's life? Well, the Bible tells us that David had multiple wives. As a matter of fact, David had a number of wives. He certainly didn't have the number of wives that his son Solomon had, but he had a good many wives. And you're probably going to say, now, what's wrong with that? Because the Old Testament is filled with men who had many wives. Well, the problem is, the law of God in the book of Deuteronomy made it very clear that the king was to only have one wife. And David would have known that because as you read the Psalms, David was hungry for the word of God. He was hungry for the law of God. So he knew God's word. And and yet in this area of his life, he compromised. And I believe that this compromise led to a compromise that created a fatal flaw in his life. And we see this in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. Listen to what it says. It says, in the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed, was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. Now, you don't have to be a strong Christian to realize that that's wrong. That's a sin. David saw a beautiful woman. He lusted after her. He committed adultery with her. She became pregnant. He tried to cover up his sin. And and when he could not cover up his sin, he had Bathsheba's husband killed. It all began because David could not control his lust. He lusted. He committed adultery. It led him to kill someone. And understand, he didn't just kill anyone. Uriah was not some stranger. You read this story here, and you could think that Uriah was some stranger. He did not know Bathsheba. But understand, the Scripture makes it clear that David knew Uriah. David knew Bathsheba. The Bible tells us that Uriah was one of David's 30 mighty men. Do you know what that means? That means that Uriah was one of the 30 men that David trusted the most. 
30 men that were closer to him, that were more loyal to him than anyone else in Israel. Uriah was a close, trusted friend of David. And yet David had him killed because he could not control his lust. Now, as you continue to read the story of David in the scripture, you discover that this event began a downward spiral in the family of David. The child that was, that was conceived out of this adulterous relationship died. And, and then one of David's sons raped one of David's daughters. Then the brother of that daughter killed the son who had raped his sister. Then that son tried to take over the throne of David, and it went downhill from there. Now, some of you are probably saying, Rocky, are you implying that David's sin here led to all of this chaos in his family? I'm not implying it. I'm telling you that's the truth. When David committed this sin, it created an event that led to more events that brought a downward spiral in his home. Dads, listen up. When you compromise your values, when you fail to live by God's word, it's going to have a profound negative impact, not only on you, but on your entire family. Now, when you blow it, can you be forgiven? Absolutely. Yes. Praise God we can be forgiven. But that doesn't change the fact that there still may be consequences to our sinful choices, to our compromised values. That's why it's important, men, listen to me. That's why it's important for you to determine the values that you're going to live by. Write a line in the sand and never cross that line because understand your enemy, the adversary, is going to do everything he can to make you cross that line and compromise your values. So you've got to write those values down and live by them. Now let me give you a little word of advice. If you want to live by those biblical values that are important to you, it's not just up to you. You need to have some accountability in your life. We all need that. You may say, well, Rocky, if I love Jesus with all my heart and I stay in his word and I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, then, then I should be able to withstand any temptation. And that's true. But the problem is the Bible tells us that we need to be continually filled with the Spirit and we're not always filled with the Spirit. And our enemy, our adversary is looking for those times in our life when we are weak, when we're vulnerable, so that he can cause us to fall. That's why you need accountability. Every man in here needs another man in his life that loves the Lord, that you can trust that you're willing to let them hold you accountable on the tough things of life. Men, listen. If you want to stand true to the values that you say you hold dear, then you need to be willing to get an accountability partner who is going to help hold you accountable in your life. If you don't, it could create devastating effects on your family. Here's the second major mistake. Let your children discover their own values. That's a big thing today. 
parent saying, well, I'm going to let my children decide what's right and what's wrong. That's foolish. That's crazy. That doesn't make sense. And to show you this, I want us to look at Genesis chapter 19. It's all about Lot. Do you remember Lot? Lot was the nephew of Abraham, the father of the faith, the Bible says in the New Testament, the one who left his homeland to follow God into the promised land. And the Bible tells us that when he left following God, he took his nephew Lot with him. Now, the Bible doesn't say this, but I believe with all my heart that as Lot traveled with Abraham and observed Abraham and listened to Abraham, Lot became convinced that he wanted to follow the faith of his uncle Abraham. And I believe that Lot became a follower of the one true God. You say, Rocky, why do you believe that? Well, because 2 Peter tells us that Lot was a righteous man. So I want you to remember that. Here was Lot, who was a righteous man, who believed, who trusted in the one true God, and yet he messed up his family. Now, how did it happen? Well, it started when, when Abraham and Lot decided they were going to part ways. And Abraham let Lot choose where he was going to live. And Lot looked down to the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he saw that that land was fertile. It was a rich land. And Lot decided that he wanted that land. So Abraham let him go. But the Bible tells us that the land of Sodom and Gomorrah was not only a fertile, rich land, it was a land that was filled with wickedness. The Bible tells us that the people of Sodom sinned constantly against God. And that's where Lot moved. And he didn't move there to be a missionary. He moved there because it was good for his pocketbook. It was a good place to make money. It was a good place to get wealthy. How often do we make decisions based upon the dollar rather than the word and will of God? When we do that, it's never going to turn out good for us. And so here's Lot. He's moved to Sodom. He is wealthy. Things seem to be going well as far as the world is concerned. He has lots of friends. He's well-known in the city. He's well-respected in the city. He's following the one true God. And yet, even though he's following the one true God, no one seems to know. No one seems to care. It hasn't even affected his family. And so as he's living there, God finally gets fed up with the wickedness of Sodom. And God says, I'm going to destroy these cities in the plain. I'm going to rain down my judgment on them. But God sent some angels to deliver the righteous people. But the only righteous ones there were Lot. And that's where we read our scripture found in Genesis 19, beginning in verse 12. It says, Meanwhile, the angels questioned Lot. Do you have any other relatives here in the city, they asked. Get them out of the place, your son-in-laws, sons, daughters, anyone else, for we are about to destroy the city completely. The outcry against this place is so great, it has reached the Lord, and he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot rushed out to tell his daughters, fiancés, quick, get out of the city. The Lord is about to destroy it. But the young men thought he was only joking. So here was Lot talking to his future son-in-laws, telling them God's judgment is about to come, and they didn't believe him. 
They thought he was joking around. Why? Because Lot had never talked to them about the things of God. These future son-in-laws to his two daughters, they probably came from good families, well-to-do families. They were probably young men that could have provided well for his daughters. But the problem was they didn't know the Lord that Lot knew. They didn't hold to the values that, that Lot held to. And he allowed his daughters to get into a relationship with these men that did not know the Lord. Now, understand, parents, that's not wise. The Bible tells us to be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. You need to encourage and teach your children that when they get into relationships, they need to get into relationships with people that hold the same values they hold, that serve the same God that they serve, but these men didn't. And so they stayed in the city. They got judged with the city. Lot, his two daughters, his wife left the city. And if you remember the story, the angel said, don't look back. Lot's wife looked back and she turned into a pillar of salt. And I don't know what all that means. I know she died because she disobeyed God. I don't know how it happened. I don't know what all that means, but she died. And here's Lot and his two daughters and they're all alone and they're living in this desolate wasteland. And this is where we read something that, that is so, so wicked, so unnatural, that we wonder, how could this ever happen? Now, listen to what it says in, in verses 30 and following. It says, afterwards, Lot left Zor because he was afraid of the people there. And he went to live in a cave in the mountains with his two daughters. One day, the older daughter said to her sister, there are no men left anywhere in the entire area. So we can't get married like everyone else, and our father will soon be too old to have children. Come, let's get him drunk with wine, and then we'll have sex with him. That way we'll preserve our family line through our father. So that night they got him drunk with wine, and the older sister went in and had intercourse with her father. He was unaware of her lying down or getting up again. The next morning, the older daughter said to her younger sister, I had sex with our father last night. Let's get him drunk with wine again tonight, and you can get in, go in and have sex with him. That way we will preserve our family line through our father. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that story, I think, how in the world could they do something so wicked, so unnatural? To get their father drunk and to sleep with him. How could that happen? Can I tell you how it happened? It happened because Lot did not instill in them his values that he learned from his uncle Abraham. He allowed them to discover their own values in the land of Sodom. And when they discovered the values of Sodom, they discovered values that were vile and wicked that had no bounds. And that's what happens when we allow our children to discover their own values. Listen, parents, it's your job to teach your children values. It's your job. Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says, and you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them 
when you are at home, when you are on the road, when you're going to bed, when you're getting up, tie them to your hands, wear them on your forehead as reminders, write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. What that's saying is that you're pouring your values into your children every hour of every day, night and day, morning and evening. You're pouring into your children those godly values. That's your assignment. Dads, take it seriously. Third major mistake. Don't discipline your children. And we see this in the life of Eli. He was a priest. His story is found in 1 Samuel chapter 1 through 3. And the Bible tells us that he was the priest that, that raised Samuel there at the tabernacle. And though he did a good job of raising Samuel to listen to God, he did a horrible job of raising his own sons. The Bible tells us that they were scoundrels. They treated the Lord's offering with contempt. They were involved in all kinds of evil, and Eli knew it. And because of that, the Bible says that God was going to judge them. In chapter 3, verse 12, God says this, I'm going to carry out all my threats against Eli and his family from beginning to end. I've warned him that judgment is coming upon his family forever because his sons are blaspheming God and he hasn't disciplined them. Eli's sons were blaspheming God and God or Eli didn't discipline them. I imagine as Eli's sons were growing up, he said things like this, well, boys will be boys. You know, they'll just do crazy things, but they'll grow out of that. But Eli's sons were not just boys being boys. They were sinning against God. They were sinning against men. Later on in life, Eli tried to confront his sons, but it was too little too late. In chapter 2, verse 22, it says this. It says, now Eli was very old and he was aware of what his sons were doing to the people of Israel. He knew, for instance, that his sons were seducing the young women who assisted at the entrance of the tabernacle. Eli said to them, I've been hearing reports from all the people about the wicked things you're doing. Why do you keep sinning? You must stop, my sons. The reports I hear among the Lord's people are not good. If someone sins against another person, God can mediate for the guilty party. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede? But Eli's sons wouldn't listen to their father, for the Lord was already planning to put them to death. Listen, if you haven't disciplined your children when they're adolescents, they're not going to listen to you when they're teenagers and when they're older. The time to start disciplining your children is when they're toddlers. How many of you heard of the terrible twos, terrible threes? Raise your hand. You've heard about the terrible twos and terrible threes because they're terrible. I mean, kids get two, kids get three, and, and what they're doing is they're testing. They're trying to see who's in charge, who's the boss. Our grandson, Summit, is living with us now. Summit's two years old. And Summit, he's quite the boy. And um, Summit's trying to determine who's in charge. One of Summit's favorite statements is, you can't tell me what to do. <laughs> he likes that statement. The reason he likes that statement is because he's trying to figure out who's in charge. He's no different than any other two or three-year-old. They're all trying to do that. And, and what I've discovered 
is the reality is in many families, many homes all around America, that two or that three-year-old's in charge. I mean, and the problem is if they're in charge when they're two or three, it's going to create problems when they're 13 and 15 and 18 and 23. You see, the Bible says a lot about discipline. It's a subject that if you want to read about discipline, you can find it in Scripture. Let me just read you a couple of verses or several verses that I believe are important. Proverbs 13, 24, those who spare the rod of discipline hate their children. Those who love their children care enough to discipline them. The Bible makes it clear that disciplining our children is the loving thing to do. Unfortunately, many times we as parents want to be our kids' buddies rather than their parents. And what you need to understand is your kids can find their buddies on the playground. You need to be their parents. And one of your roles as a parent is to discipline them. Proverbs 19, verse 18, discipline your children while there is hope, otherwise you will ruin their lives. That phrase, ruin their lives, it literally means be responsible for their death. Did you get that? The Bible says that when we fail to discipline our children, we are responsible for their death. You say, how is that so? Well, because if we fail to discipline them, then they are going to end up living undisciplined, dangerous lives. They will believe that there are no consequences for their actions, and there's always consequences. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen: a youngster's heart is filled with foolishness, but physical discipline will drive it far away. Would you agree with me that children can do foolish things? And I did all kind of foolish things when I was growing up. When I was growing up, man, it was still back in the day when you could get paddled at school. Now, I know I'm talking about something controversial, but I'm all for bringing paddling back. <laughs> because I don't have any scars on my butt. I'm okay. I can sit down. I'm okay. I'm, I, no, no scars. But I got paddled at school. And whenever I got paddled at school, the principal would send a note home telling that I got paddled and why I got paddled. And you know what happened when I got home? I got paddled. I got paddled. And so I got paddled at school. I got paddled at home. I was paddling. And I was, I was, I, I was a paddled kid. But paddling taught me something. It, it, it taught me to fear. And there is a healthy fear. And so when I was about to do something at school that I knew was wrong and I knew there was a good chance I was going to get called and I was going to get paddled at school, I knew that when I got home, my dad, who was an ex-Marine, was going to paddle me again. And um, I didn't want to get paddled by him. And so it was a good restraint for me. Proverbs 23, 13 and 14. Don't fail to discipline your children. They won't die if you spank them. Physical discipline may well save them from death. Proverbs 29, 17, discipline your children and they will give you peace of mind and will make your heart glad. You see, we're afraid to discipline our children because we're afraid if we do, they won't love us anymore. And yet the Bible teaches that when we discipline our children, it will bring peace of mind and more love into our home. Now, now let me give you some some cues, some helps about discipline. When you discipline, don't discipline in anger. 
Have any of you ever gotten mad at your kids? Raise your hand if you ever got mad at your kids. Well, thank Jesus some of you would have. I mean, I, I was going to feel bad if I'm the only one raising my head and, and I'm thinking I'm a terrible parent. I've gotten mad at my kids before. And, and what I've learned is you don't discipline in anger because your children need to know that there is a difference between discipline and anger, that you can discipline and love at the same time. Now, a good idea for that is if you're angry, cool down before you discipline. Another idea that I think is a good idea is you book in your discipline with prayer. So if you're going to have to discipline your child, whether it is a spanking or whether it is some kind of timeout or whatever it may be, you start the discipline with prayer. And then after the discipline is over, you end the discipline with prayer. Second thing, understand that discipline is not punishment. Discipline may involve pain, but the purpose is correction and teaching. It's not to punish your child. We need to let our children know that when we spank them or take away privileges, it's not to torment them. It's not to put them in the chamber of horrors. It's to teach them truths to live by. And then finally, don't expect perfection. Your kids are going to mess up. You do still. And so if you're not perfect, you can't expect your children to be perfect. So exercise some grace with them. So failure to discipline your child. The fourth major mistake is this. Show favoritism. If you want to split your family down the middle, show favoritism. There are two examples in Scripture of this. The first is in Genesis chapter 25, verse 28. It's Isaac and Rebekah's family. Isaac was the son of Abraham. Remember that? And in Genesis chapter 25, verse 28, it says, Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home. But Rebekah loved Jacob. You remember the story? So Isaac loved Esau. Rebekah loved Jacob. And, and that went through their entire life as the kids were growing up until finally Rebekah plotted with Jacob to destroy um, to steal her son's birthright, her son um, um, Esau's birthright for Jacob. A, a mom plotting to do this. And you can imagine the animosity and the anger and the pain that brought into this family. As a matter of fact, I want you to hear me. The pain and the division that it brought to that family, Jacob and Esau, it's still seen today. What we see happening in the Arab world with the Arabs and the Israelis, it's Jacob and Esau. They're still at one another. And what happens oftentimes is when we show favoritism, it's a cycle that continues. Listen to what it says about Jacob in Genesis 37. It says, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. So here was Jacob that gets this expensive robe made for his son Joseph because he was his son in his old age and gave it to him. So every time his brothers saw this robe, they knew dad loves Joseph more than he loves us. What do you think that caused? Can I tell you what it caused? 
It, it calls those, those other brothers to want to kill Joseph. But instead of killing him, they sold him into slavery. Now, praise God, God uses all things for good. And he used that to deliver Joseph's family. But I want you to hear me. That favoritism that was shown to Joseph caused his brothers to hate him so much that they wanted to kill him and they sold him into slavery. Favoritism divides families. And you may say, as a parent, I'm not showing favoritism. And you may not be trying to. But your kids may think otherwise. There are things that can lead your children to think that you have favorites. Let me give you a couple of examples. If, if you have a child that makes straight A's and you have another one that struggles in school and, and you say, Billy, why, why can't you make straight A's like your brother? Oh, goodness gracious, don't do that. Or if you say, Bobby, look how athletic Billy is. Why can't you be a little more athletic? Now, listen to me. That hurts when we're adults. Think how much more it hurts when we're kids. Don't show favoritism. Now, understand We've just looked at four mistakes that led to tragic results in biblical families. Good, godly dads. David, Lot, Isaac, Jacob, Eli, the priest. These were good men, godly men that made some major mistakes that created irreparable harm in their family. Now, why do I say that? Because dads, what you're doing is important. And you need to take it seriously. And you need to understand that if you take your eyes off Jesus for a minute and you mess up, it's not only going to affect you, it's going to affect your family and your family's family. And it could affect generations to come. And praise God for his grace. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for your grace. But we cannot hold on to grace believing that God's grace is going to take away some of the consequences of our bad choices. So dads, take your responsibility seriously. Now here's what I know. I know that it's tough being a dad in the best of situations. But apart from Jesus, you're never going to be the dad you need to be. And here's why. You may be able to teach your son to throw an impressive curveball or, or throw a perfect spiral. You may be able to help your kids with, with algebra and calculus and trigonometry. 
You may be able to help them get into the best schools and get the best jobs and live in the best neighborhoods, but if you don't prepare them for eternity, they've missed what they were created for. And you can't prepare them for eternity unless you know Jesus. So dads, do you know Jesus? Mom, do you know Jesus? There's nothing more important. Nothing. I want you to bow your head. Would you close your eyes? With your head bowed, with your eyes closed, if you're here and you've never given your heart and life to Jesus, you've never admitted to God that you're a sinner, and you've never repented, turned from your sin, and trusted Jesus to be your Savior, surrendered your life to His will, and you want to do that today, then here's what you need to do. You need to pray this simple prayer. You can pray it right now. Dear God, I humbly come to you today admitting I'm a sinner. I've been living life my way like I'm God. Forgive me. I don't want to do that anymore. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross to pay for all my sins, all my failures. I'm trusting your death to provide forgiveness for me. To save me. Because of that, I'm giving you my life. From this moment on, Jesus, I want to live for you. I want you to be the Lord of my life. Come into my heart. Take control. Make me brand new, I pray. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer,